Matthew 28, verses 11 to 20. If you do not have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the app or you can share with the person sitting next to you. All right, let me read this for us. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into, into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and, ta- uh, and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people Jesus' disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Would you all pray with me one more time? God, I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much for just another day, a new day where we can live for you, a new day where we can come Uh, Not as perfect people, but even as broken, imperfect people, we come here knowing that you don't judge us by our failures, but you judge us uh, based on what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. So you see us as um, blemish-free. You see us as people who are sinless because of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all of that. As we come before you today and listen to your word, we do pray that you will really speak to us today. Really remind us why this is important. Why Jesus, the character of Jesus, is not some historical figure, but is someone that is so important to us. It is our source of life and life eternal. So strengthen us through your word today and speak to us clearly. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, if you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is called The Great Cover-Up versus The Great Commission. The Great Cover-Up versus The Great Commission. Okay. Uh, if you guys have been with us for the past however many years, uh, we did it. We finally made it. We are here at the end of our journey in the book of Matthew. As we started, I looked back, uh, we started back in August 27th of 2017. And for a little over two years, we've been studying this book from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way until now chapter 28, verse 20. And although for some of us, it might have been a drag, some of you guys were actually here for the whole time, And we were hoping to hear messages from different passages, but our church, uh, we believe that there's beauty in expository preaching. What do I mean by that? Uh, We believe uh, that there's beauty in preaching from verse by verse, every verse, throughout the entire book, so that we can uh, go much more in depth, and so that we can look back and reflect upon what we heard last week, as well as build on top of the lessons week in and week out. So here we are in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 20. 
And now many of us are familiar with the Great Commission, verses 16 to 20. And if you joined us, joined us during Easter service, I, I preached on this passage, verse 16 to 20. But for our time together to, uh, this morning, as we look at the verse that comes before the Great Commission, verses 11 to 15, we see another group that's being sent out. There's a Great Commission, verse 16 to 20, but before that there is a Great Cover-Up, verses 11 to 15, and they're also being sent out to share the false news, the lies, the fabricated lie regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you see, after the angelic announcement that Jesus has risen from the grave, we see two groups running from the grave, right? We see two groups that are running as fast as they could away from the empty tomb with a message to deliver. We see the two Marys who have a message of hope and victory for the disciples, but we also see the two soldiers, or however many guards there were, who have a message of defeat and failure for the priests and the elders. As the announcement regarding the resurrection of Jesus reaches the two parties, the religious leaders and the disciples, we see the two contrasting reactions, two contrasting response. We have one group that is quickly trying to cover up the truth regarding the resurrection of Jesus, while we have the other group who worships and is commissioned to tell the truth. So as we compare and contrast the two stories, as I have titled The Great Cover-Up versus The Great Commission, I hope and pray that we too will partake in the correct commission rather than the fabricated one. The one that is focused on making disciples rather than making deceivers. The mission that gives life rather than mission that takes life. So first, let's take a look at the Jewish religious leaders' devilish plan, their evil plan, or what I like to call their great cover-up. So first, let's look at the great cover-up from verses 11 to 15. Now, as the guards were running from the tomb into the city of Jerusalem, what's interesting is how they go directly to the priests and the elders. The guards, they don't go to their commanding officer. They don't go to report what has happened in the tomb to anyone else, but they go directly to the Jewish priests and the elders. That's interesting because it shows that they were up to something, right? The guards stood near the ground, near the tomb. They were Jewish temple guards rather than the Roman guards. Nonetheless, they quickly run to the priests and the elders in Jerusalem, and they're trying to explain what happened. Can you just imagine if you put yourself in the soldier's shoe? They're trying to explain what just happened. They were running to share this news, but at the same time, I'm sure they were at a loss for words. I mean, are you, how are you going to describe what just happened by the tomb? Right? Uh, so you, you see, we were guarding the tomb, and everything was fine and all, but all of a sudden, there was an earthquake. Did you guys feel the earthquake? Uh, and then an angel appeared out of nowhere. He was really, really bright. Everything was bright. And, and then we kind of fell asleep. And then we woke up and the stone was rolled away. I don't know how. And we go inside to check and Jesus is gone. I could just imagine the panic, the confusion, as well as the fear, as they were trying their best to share with the chief priests and the elders regarding what just happened. So these Jewish religious leaders are one of the first ones to hear the great news of the resurrection. They're the first, one of the first ones to hear this awesome news that Jesus, the Savior, has risen from the grave. Just as he promised, just as he prophesied. But you see, for them, it was no good news. Rather, it was perhaps the worst news 
It's not what they wanted to hear. In fact, it was their worst nightmare. Because you see, after the death of Jesus, the chief priests and the, the leaders of the Jewish religious group, they seemed victorious against Jesus. But their careful plans to get rid of Jesus have unraveled and have failed miserably. We see them in disarray and distressed and desperately trying to cover this up. So what do they do? What do they do to cover it up? They get to, do, they get to work and they do what they do best. They plan to cover things up to get out of trouble. You see, Jewish religious leaders such as priests and elders have been mentioned pretty frequently in the book of Matthew. They are mentioned often throughout the gospel of Matthew, but not for good reasons. They were natural allies who were usually found either being called out by Jesus or planning to get rid of Jesus. These two make up the power structure of the temple in Jerusalem, which Jesus kept on threatening, which Jesus kept on calling and rebuking. So, of course, they want to team up if it means they can get rid of Jesus. So what do we have here? Even after having Jesus killed, right? They got, they, they, their plan worked. They got Jesus killed. But even after having Jesus killed, they still have to plan against him. Maybe they're so shocked that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. Or maybe they're so preoccupied about saving face. Whatever the reason might be, what's interesting is how they don't further investigate. They don't actually go back to the tomb and check out what has actually happened. They take the guard's word for it, and they don't ask any question to the guards regarding what happened. Regarding if really it was just a dream or if it really did happen. Was it really an angel that you saw? Did you actually get to see Jesus? Were any of his disciples there? None of that. They didn't ask any questions. But rather, they got busy planning again. They got busy plotting their devilish cover-up. So unlike Jesus, who is in the business of making disciples, the Jewish religious leaders were quick to planning and making disciples of their own. Or I'd like to call them as deceivers, making deceivers. Look with me, starting in verse 13. And said, tell people that it was Jesus' disciples who came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this gets to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Meaning, we'll, we'll pay him off. We'll make sure as long as you meet your end of the deal and cover this up, we will do our best to cover this up. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Friends, when looking, at verse, when looking at the word in verse 15, directed, in the original language, it's the same word that Jesus uses in verse 20, teach. As he is teaching his disciples to go and make disciples and directing them to obey everything he has commanded, we see that the Jewish religious leaders are doing the exact opposite, to directing them and teaching them to do everything opposite of what Jesus directed them to do. So what was their great cover-up plan? What were they asking these guards to do? They were actually ultimately asking these guards to spread this fabricated false lie regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Anything and everything possible so that those who hear about Jesus will not believe in him, but rather turn from him. It was their plan. As we can see in verse 13, they directed the guards to spread a rumor that Jesus, it was indeed his disciples who came by night and stole him away while the guards were asleep. Maybe some of you guys heard that theory before. I mean, but what's ironic is, 
These were Jewish religious leaders that we're talking about here. They were Jewish religious leaders. The ones who were supposed to be devout, the ones who were supposed to uh, be righteous in leading other people to obey the law, but rather we see them investing in making deceivers rather than disciples. And due to their efforts, it came to fruition as even to this day, many believe false lies regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps some of you guys in your history class, in your religion class, you guys have heard different theories of why Jesus did not really rise again from the dead. Because uh, let's be honest, we have never seen in our entire life someone come back from, life, from death. In fact, there are four predominant theories or lies that have been spreading regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Because, come on, how can anyone believe, right? How can anyone believe that someone actually who died could come back to life, right? So here are four predominant lies that, we've been, that these people have been spreading. The first one, wrong tomb. Some people believe that the Mary simply went to the wrong tomb. They did not go to Jesus' tomb. They went to the wrong tomb. Maybe because they were in such great sorrow, because they were crying so much. They haven't slept. They haven't eaten because they're in such agony. They just went to the wrong tomb, and they saw a tomb that's open. They're like, oh, Jesus is not in there. That has to mean that he rose again from the dead. Well, if they really did go to the wrong tomb, if you think about it, friends, wouldn't history reveal the corpse of Jesus after all? Wouldn't Jesus' corpse show up somehow in some way to prove that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead? Well, friends, it's over 2,000 years have passed. The body of Jesus is still yet to be found. What does that mean? They probably popped open every single tomb in Jerusalem to try to figure out, try to prove that Jesus did not rise again from the dead, but they cannot find his body. So, wrong tomb? I don't know. That theory doesn't really make sense. What about the second theory? Second theory is that Jesus' followers were hallucinating. Some argue that as they were so filled with grief, they were hallucinating about Jesus. Well then, let me try to refute that. How are they going to explain the testimonies of hundreds of people? There's been records, historical, historically there's been records of hundreds of people who have seen Jesus who rose again from the dead who witnessed the resurrected Christ. How are they going to explain that Jesus sat down with them, Jesus ate with them for 40 days? Friends, there's never been in the history of hallucinations that happened in a group setting, where all the entire groups hallucinated at the same time for 40 days, and after 40 days, they stopped hallucinating. That has never happened in the past. There's never been a case of hallucination where a whole group of people hallucinated for that long period of time and then stopped all of a sudden. Okay, so that theory maybe doesn't really make sense. Okay, then third theory. This is very popular in the modern day. It's called the swoon theory. Some argue that Jesus never died. Some argue that because he got beat so much, because he, so, he suffered so much on the cross, he bled so much that he just passed out. He just blacked out. Well, if this were to happen, then Jesus would still imagine, okay, if he never died, he just blacked out, he woke up. Just Can you just imagine Jesus who actually woke up in the tomb, his blood everywhere, flesh torn, his lung is punctured with a spear. He gets up, okay, he gets up and he rolls the tomb, he rolls the stone to get out of the tomb, 
to make a trip to Galilee, that's a hundred mile hike. And even when he does meet with his disciples, how is he going to instill to his followers that he has conquered death when he looks like he's about to die? How is he going to empower these disciples that he is the way to life when he looks like he's about to die? Well, that theory doesn't really work. And the last theory, last but not least, as we see in today's story, some argue that disciples, Jesus' disciples stole his body. And they made up this whole story about the resurrection. Well, I think we're giving way too much credit to the disciples here. If you look at the disciples, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it shows us that disciples were nothing but cowards. And all they know how to do is argue, complain, and fish. We see them running for their lives when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, and no one dared to come back to see Jesus' crucifixion or burial. But people are arguing that they had now turned to these group of avengers, right, who somehow make the guards who are guarding the tomb fall asleep so they can roll back the stone and steal his body and uh, still keep it hidden to this day. Does that make sense to you? That they were willing to be tortured and killed for something that they know for sure is a lie. Majority of these disciples were tortured to death because of their faith in Christ. But if this theory is true, then they were sacrificing their life for a lie. Friends, I don't know about you guys, but it seems as though that the enemies of Christ are working overtime. People against Jesus Christ are working overtime trying to convince the world, trying to convince people to believe or to not believe in the resurrection. But they have some very poor arguments here. Not very convincing, at least to me, as each of these theories have a giant, giant void. Friends, let me ask you, what's stopping you from believing in the resurrection of Jesus? What is your excuse? What is your theory? What are some theories that you have that you choose to believe in, that you refuse to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? Perhaps a better question I ought to ask is, what's driving you? away from trusting in Christ? What's driving you to reject this message of truth? What's motivating you to stay away from Christ? For the Jewish religious leaders and the guards, it was fear. They were driven by fear. Look with me in verse 11 to 12. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Friends, Have you ever, have you ever done something that you felt was like so wrong or you know for sure that it's not right that you don't want to keep it hidden? I know we're all guilty, right? Maybe some of you guys cheated on your exams. Pastor, God would never do that, right? Maybe some of you guys lied about your taxes. Maybe you have not completely been honest with someone that you love. Maybe you committed a crime, right? Such as speed limit. Oh, that's not a crime, right? You committed a crime or you did something that was not legal. What do you do? More often than not, the world tells you to cover it up. As long as no one finds out, 
as long as no one knows, it's not a crime. You're not at fault. However, although nobody knows, you know. And due to the possibility, a slim chance of someone finding out, you live in fear because you don't want to face the consequence or shame that comes with the truth being revealed. We're all hiding something. When you look at the actions of these guards and the religious leaders, they were ultimately driven by fear. First, for the guards, they have fear because you see the stone being rolled away and Jesus' body not being in the tomb means they have failed to do their job. Right? You see those memes going around with the phrase, you had one job. They had one job. All they had to do was guard the tomb, make sure no one goes in, and make sure that dude does not come out. That's all they needed to do to make sure that Jesus never gets out. Not only that, for them to admit that they fell asleep on the job, that would be a capital offense. And they would also be a serious, it would be a serious loss of face. Lots of shame, guilt, embarrassment. Not only would you lose your job, you would also have to face some sort of punishment, along with all the shame, dishonor, embarrassment that they would have to bring to themselves as well as their family. As for the priests and the elders, Jesus coming back to life was their greatest fear. It was their worst nightmare. Why? How are they going to explain to everyone else? How are they going to explain to Pilate, as well as the crowd of Jerusalem, all of this? They were the one who initiated for Jesus to be a false king, for Jesus to die on the cross because he was a fake. You see, if this news got out, if the truth got out, They too will be dethroned and stripped from any honor and status. So their fear of men, all the shame, all the dishonor, all the embarrassment that they are about to face, that drives them. That drives them somewhat, empowers them to go the distance to make sure that truth stays buried. Perhaps for some of us, right? We keep things hidden pretty well, we think. As long as no one finds out. But what if it does? And I pray that it does. Not so that you can be miserable with embarrassment, because, but because the truth needs to come out to set you free, right? The truth will set you free. We believe in this lie that the world's telling us that as long as no one knows, it's okay. That's exactly what Satan wants for you. We see the religious leaders up to their evil bribing schemes again, making sure that they shove enough money down the throat of these soldiers, or not just the soldiers, anyone, anyone and everyone, so that the truth doesn't get out. Money is not an issue for them. They're willing to sell all of their possessions to make sure that the truth doesn't get out. Now, bribery always involves two parties, right? And both are equally guilty. If you ever receive the bribe, you're also guilty as well. So you see, the guards could have easily backed out. Soldiers could have been like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I'll admit my wrong. I fell asleep on my job. Jesus is alive. I saw an angel. It is what it is. But you see, they could have easily backed out, but it appears as though they got paid enough, right? Bible says a sufficient sum of money. We don't really know how much that is. We've got to ask when we get to heaven, but that has to be a lot of money, right? for them to keep their mouth shut. It was enough for them to keep their mouth shut and, it started, uh, and also 
to keep their mouth open and spreading a lie, a fabricated lie. Friends, let me ask you, what's it going to cost you to keep your mouth shut in sharing about Jesus? For us, not much. As long as I get a good GPA, as long as I get a good job, good, good internships, good life, happy marriage, I don't really need to share about anything else. What temptation is strong enough to hinder you or stop you from sharing the word regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Maybe for some of us, we too, we too struggle with fear, fear of men. We care a little bit too much about what others think of us. In fact, we care so much about what people think of us that it controls us. Friends, before Kanye came out with his new album, right, Jesus is King, it was never cool to share about your faith in social media. Never, right? Jesus and his church is rarely trending on social media for positive reasons. It's usually trending for negative reasons. For some of us, our desire for wealth or fame or power, it hinders us away from Christ. For others, it's our desire to be in this lovey-dovey relationship or temptation of sin, hidden addiction that chokes our desire for Christ. So what is it? What's driving you to partake in the mission of the great cover-up rather than the great commission? What's hindering you from following Jesus and making him known? The truth of the gospel to the truth regarding his death and resurrection. While the deceivers and the evil authorities are driven by fear to spread lies about Jesus, we see the true disciples of Jesus spread truth regarding Jesus, even if their life is on the line. So let's look at the Great Commission. The Great Commission. First we saw the Great Cover-Up. Now let's look at the Great Commission. While the Jewish religious leaders and the guards were busy making deceivers, making liars, Jesus got busy making disciples who make disciples. Was a disciple making disciples. While the fabricated lie was being spread among the Jews and the people of Jerusalem, something was cooking up in Galilee. While the lies were spreading in the city of Jerusalem, 100 miles north in Galilee, the proclamation of the truth that is about to be launched is going to change the world. So first, rather than making deceivers, Jesus is interested in making disciples. Uh, as I mentioned previously, the Jewish religious leaders were not the only ones to hear the news regarding the resurrection. Through the two women, the two Marys, whom the angel as well as Jesus himself instructed, the remaining disciples were given a message of hope, a message of joy, that Jesus has indeed rose again from the dead and that he will meet with them in Galilee. And as Jesus meets with his disciples, there is no record of calling them out, no record of scolding them, Disciplining them, no record of rebuking them for their lack of faith, right? How could you leave me to be arrested in Gethsemane? Peter, I told you that you would deny me three times. I saw you at the corner of my eye. James and John, I saw your mother as I was getting crucified. Where were you? Right? Jesus did not meet with his disciples to call them out for their wrong. Jesus met with his disciples to call them out into the world. He restores them to call them out. We saw this earlier as, as Jesus arose, rose again from the dead. He tells the Marys 
to tell his brother, right? Tell his brothers to meet him in Galilee. In verse 10, 28 verse 10, he says, tell my brothers to meet with me in Galilee. This shows that Jesus has already forgiven them. Jesus has already forgiven them for their rejection, for their desertion, and he now wants to empower them and use them for the kingdom work. So then, what is this work that Jesus desires for his disciples to do? What is Jesus going to make his disciples do? To make disciples. He asks them in verse 19, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That seems like a lot, but in short, the main verb here is to make disciples. So what does it mean? What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple first? I would say a disciple is someone who hears, who obeys, and who lives out the word of God. Let me say that again. A disciple is someone who hears, who obeys, and who lives out the word of God. Friends, did you know that in the original language that the Bible was written, the verb to listen and to obey is the same word? You can look it up in Greek, look it up in Hebrew. The word for listen and to obey is the same word. Why? Very rarely would you listen and disobey. If you listen, God expects you to obey. But we think, in our minds, we have the rights to listen, and if we don't like it, we have the rights to disobey. When the same word, when it's the same word to listen and to obey. A disciple is someone who hears who obeys, and he lives out the word of God. So in order for us to make disciples, we need to first and foremost hear, obey, and live out the word ourselves. How are we doing in that manner, friends? How are you living out your life as a disciple? God's not asking us to be perfect, but he are, he's asking us, are we, active in making an effort, are we actively making an effort in being a disciple through his word? So first and foremost, we must become a disciple of Jesus before we can make disciples. Second, Jesus is commanding us to make disciples, which means we need to act as tutors or mentors, right? When you, when you guys have a hard time at school, you have TAs, right? God is asking us to be the TA, the spiritual TA, the spiritual mentor in helping others enroll in the school of Christ, helping them not only to learn about Jesus, but to mature in Christ, to love Jesus, and to live for him. That's very different from evangelism. We are to strive not only to share the good news of Jesus, but to walk with them through the gospel so that they can hear, obey, and live out his word as well. So we are called to make disciple-making disciples. First, let me ask you, when was the last time you discipled someone? I'm not saying disciple them in sports or disciple them in academics. But when was the last time you discipled someone in Christ? I want to encourage you to start praying. To start praying, if you haven't already, for God to lead you to someone. To lead you to someone or some people who you can disciple. And someone that you can be discipled by. Friends, back when I was in college, everyone wanted to be discipled. Everyone wanted to be discipled by someone, but the issue was no one wanted to disciple anyone. They all wanted to receive, but no one wanted to give. 
Nowadays, I feel as though no one, no one even wants to be discipled. They don't see the need to be under someone. I don't need you. I got this. Friends, discipleship is a necessity in Christian life. We were never meant to do this alone. Discipleship is a necessity, but it's definitely not something that we can generate apart from Christ and apart from the body of Christ. That means we need each other. When's the last time you've been discipled? When's the last time you discipled someone? Pastor, I'm not ready to disciple anyone. Oh, yeah? Then you should be discipled first. Very rarely do I have people come up and say, Pastor God, I want to be discipled. Can I, can I be discipled? What does that look like? I, I, I want to know. As we look at our second point, rather than driven, being driven by fear, we see the disciples of Jesus are driven by faith. Driven by dependence. Or in other words, driven by faith. Right? In our, not in ourselves, not in our own abilities or our own achievements, but faith in Jesus' promise to provide. Going back to the text, when we, look, when we take a look at verse 16, we see that only 11 disciples went to Galilee. If you guys remember, didn't Jesus have 12 why is there only 11? Well, because Judas betrayed Jesus, right? And he hung himself and he died. Yeah, but they could have easily just found another dude. We see later on in Acts chapter 1, Jesus does bring another, another guy, Matthias. He's the 12th, a new 12th. But why is it that 11 disciples stuck around and they didn't add one more? Well, because if you think about it, right, the company that they were working for closed shop. Right? They all were out of jobs because they were disciples of Jesus, but Jesus died, so I add someone else. The, the significance of the, the 11 disciples here in verse 16, I believe he's focusing on the imperfection. Right? 11 is an imperfect number, right? For those of you guys who love, who love math, 11 is an imperfect number. And it shows the imperfections of the disciples. None of these disciples were perfect, not even, especially Peter. None of these disciples were perfect. So why does Matthew think it's important to blatantly say that the 11 disciples went to Galilee? It's because God wants to remind all of us that he wants to, that he desires to use imperfect people like us, broken people like us, to fulfill his perfect work. After encountering the risen Christ, we see that some disciples still doubted, right? I don't think doubt is necessarily bad. Even Christians can doubt. However, at the end of the day, what drives you? Is it doubt or is it faith? Is it fear or is it faith? Even with some doubt, even with some failures, even with some imperfections and brokenness, even if they all rejected and abandoned Jesus before, Jesus gives them another chance. And Jesus never gives up on them. And he never will give up on them. And that is, that's the beauty of the grace of God, right? Through the imperfect people, through the imperfect church, God will carry out his perfect work. That's the, that's the great commission. And Jesus doesn't bribe these disciples with money or wealth, but rather, he puts already the wealth, uh, he already provides 
beforehand. Jesus provides himself, which is greater than anything that money can buy. He provides himself as the source of faith that they can lean upon, that they can find strength in. That's what Jesus is promising in verse 18 and verse 20. Look in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's who you have access to, and that's who's going to empower you. That talks about his power. And then verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's focusing on his presence. So, friends, it's not our devotion or our sweat and tears that hold and mobilize the church. If you think that you have a part, well, we do, but at the end of the day, if you think you are the reason why this church is standing still today, think again. Not to say that your work is in vain, but ultimately it is his power and it is his presence that runs the church. Amen? If we try to depend on ourselves, our own skills, our own abilities, our own efforts, that church better close shop. It's not the church of Christ. The church of Christ runs on his power and his presence, not on our power and our own efforts. Friends, we can go and make disciples only because Jesus provides for us his power and his presence. Jesus not only commissions, but he also provides. Isn't that awesome? If we go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, we are introduced to baby Jesus, right? We are introduced to baby Jesus under the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, at the end of the book in Matthew chapter 28, closing of the book, we are given this confirmation, this promise that the resurrected, living, and eternal Lord himself is the one who promises to be with us always until the end of the age, which means until we see him face to face. Friends, the Great Commission is not about what we can bring to the table, but what, what, and not, not about what we can do for Jesus, but it's all about what Jesus has already done for us, and he's continuing to do in us and through us. It is Jesus Christ who gives us courage. It is Jesus Christ who gives us wisdom. It is Jesus Christ who will transform our hearts, and it is Jesus who will give us the strength. So as we close our time together in the book of Matthew, friends, how are you responding to this good news of Jesus Christ? Let's ask ourselves. How are we responding to this good news of Jesus Christ? How are we responding to this call to go and make disciples? Are you covering up this good news because we're too preoccupied with lies and temptations of this world? Well, I got Jesus in my heart, so I'm good. But I'm, I have this fear of men. I don't want to be ashamed. So as long as I go to church and as long as I go to heaven, I'm good. Are we covering up the good news for our own selfish gain? Or are we taking hold of this call that he's given us to become a disciple? Even if we are not perfect, even if we call ourselves the most imperfect, the most broken disciple, you are the perfect candidate for God to use for his perfect plan. We want to live our lives to make disciples of the perfect king, Jesus Christ. Not because we are able, but because he enables us. As we close... um, just wanted to share this. Uh, if we can go to the last slide. Uh, during college, the church that I would attend, uh, that I attended in college, was a bit radical because they had morning prayer every, every, every day. 
Uh, I don't know if your college has that, but we had morning prayer Monday through Friday at 6.30 a.m. That's nonsense for college students, right? 6.30, you should be sleeping, or you should be getting ready to sleep. You just pulled an all-nighter, either studying or playing, right? So we had morning prayer every day at 6.30, but we didn't have a church building. Our church was about 1,200, 1,400 people, but we didn't have a church building. So we would always have our meetings by renting local churches or renting classrooms. And one of the churches that we rented for morning prayer, they had this sign at the exit. As we walk out of the church, it reads, you are now entering your mission field. You are now entering your mission field. After every prayer meeting, I guarantee you, I went to so many morning prayers, I don't remember any of it because I slept through all of it. Maybe I prayed for one second, I slept for the rest of the 59 minutes and 59 seconds, whatever. But what I remember from my time in college when I went to morning prayers was that when I was leaving the church feeling guilty because I slept the whole time, I would read this sign that says, you are now entering your mission field. And that quote stuck with me because it gave me a perspective that each and every time I walk out my dorm room, each and every time I walk out this church, each and every time I walk out of my room or my house, I am now entering the mission field that he is calling me to. And I believe the same goes for us. As we leave this door today on Sunday, when we go back to our campuses, when we go back to our families, when we go back to our workplace on Monday morning, you are now entering your mission field, your campus, your workplace, your family, wherever you are, you are called to make disciples for our King Jesus, for his kingdom. And I pray that as we enter our mission field for this week, we as missionaries will go forth and partake in this great commission, rather than living a lie that it is okay for us to live a life of the great cover-up. May we be encouraged to go forth as we enter our new mission field, as we enter our mission field every day, maybe even your dorm room nowadays because of media, right? Even your own room, you can make a mission field as you chat, as you talk on the phone, as you converse with others. I pray and ask that you will really take on this call as missionaries. Every one of you guys are missionaries who are called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will do that this week. Let's pray together.